Hey guys, welcome to Crime, the rest is history and this is your host Lavnia Zeus and before moving on to today's episode, I would suggest everybody to listen to the disclaimer. So guys, today's episode is about the final victim, Mary Kelly, murdered 9th November 1888. Jack the Riper's final victim. At 25 years old, Mary Kelly was much younger than the other victims of Jack the Riper. The Daily Telegraph described her as being of fair complexion with light hair and possessing rather attractive features. Remembering her in her memories, 50 years later, Walter Dew claimed that he knew her quite well by the sight and told of how he had often seen her riding along Commercial Street between Flower and Den Street and Alligate, or along Whitechapel Road, a popular local. She was, he continued, usually in the company of two or three of her kind, fairly neatly dressed and invariably wearing a clean white apron but no hat. She appears to have been well liked in the area and the only bad thing who knew her could find to say about her was that she was occasionally tipsy. In Miller's Court with Joseph Bernard, for the eight months prior to her death, she had been renting a room in Miller's Court off Torstead Street in Spitalfields. Until two weeks before her murder, she had been living there with an unemployed Billingsgate fish potter named Joseph Bernard. His lack of earnings meant that the rent of the room was in errors and Mary had resorted to prostitution. This led to arguments between them. And during one particular heated exchange, apparently when Mary was tipsy, a pane of glass in the window by the door had been broken. The window was stuffed with newspaper and rags and was covered by an old coat. Then, in late November, Mary invited a homeless prostitute named Julia to stay with them. This proved too much for Joe Bennett, who decided enough was enough and moved out. Maria Harvey, who gave her occupation as laundress, told Polis that she had stayed with Kelly in a room on Monday and Tuesday nights prior to the murder. She had been taken a room in Newcourt, Dorset Street, but had spent the Thursday afternoon with Mary Cayley in her room at Miller's Court. At around 7 p.m., Joe Bennett had arrived and Mary Harvey left, leaving behind her black crepe bonnet and overcoat, two dirty cotton sheets, and a boy shirt and a girl's white petticoat. Joe Bennett had remained on friendly terms with Mary Cayley and had last seen her alive when he called on her between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. on Thursday, 8th November. He later said that there was another woman with them in the room, but she left first. It is unlikely that he was referring to Maria Harvey, since he knew her and would surely have mentioned her by name. He also said that the woman lived in Miller's Court, which Maria Harvey did not. It is therefore possible that he was referring to Alice Albrook, the last time Bennett saw her. In his inquest testimony, 
Bennett stated that he last saw her alive between 7.30 and 7.45 p.m. the night of Thursday before she was found. I was with her about one hour. This could be interrupted either as he arrived at between 7.30 and 7.45 or that he left between 7.30 and 7.45, given that he said it was the last time that he saw her alive and that he was with her for about an hour, he probably meant the later. A possible scenario is that he arrived at around 7 p.m., at which point Maria Havi left, whistled his was with Mary Kelly. They were visited by Lizzie Albrook. Perhaps Lizzie and Mary chatted a little before Lizzie left. Of course, this is mere su su supposition and to ascertain the exact sequence of events is of course now impossible. According to Bennett, as he left, he told Mary Kelly that he had no work and was very sorry that he was unable to give her any money. Bennett returned to his lodging house at Bishop's Gate and played whistled until 12.30 a.m., at which time he retired to bed. A cry of murder. At around 4 a.m. on the morning of 9th November, two neighbors claimed that they had heard a faint cry of, Oh, murder! But cries of murder were quite a regular occurrence in the neighborhood and often meant a drunken brawl was taking place or domestic violence was occurring. It was quite customary for those on receiving end of such violence to scream, Murder! The local residents didn't want to get involved and so they would ignore any such cries and indeed, did the two neighbors of Mary Kelly ignore the cry that they heard. Thomas Boyer finds her body. At 10.45 a.m. that morning, Mary Kelly's landlord, John McCarthy, sent his assistant, Thomas Boyer, who was also known as an Indian Harry, around to 13 Miller's Court to collect her overdue rent. Striding into Miller's coat, Breuer banged twice on her door. There was no answer. No doubt, believing that she was inside but unwillingly or unable to pay her rent, Breuer stepped around the corner and pulled aside a curtain that covered the broken window pane. Moments later, an acid-faced Breuer staggered back into McCarthy's shop. Governor! He spluttered. I knocked at the door and could not make anyone answer. I looked through the window and saw a lot of blood. You don't mean that Harry was McKitty's horrified response and the two men hurried from the shop and to Miller's coat. Stooping down, McKitty pushed aside the curtain and gazed into the gloomy room. A sight of unimaginable horror met his eyes. The wall behind the bed was spattered with blood. On the bedside table was a pile of bloody human flesh. And there on bed, barely recognizable as human, lay a virtually skinned down cadaver of Mary Cayley. The sight that Ivy saw. I cannot drive away from my mind, McCarthy later told a journalist.
It looked more like a work of a devil than of a man. I had heard a great deal about the Whitechapel murders, but I declare to God I had never expected to see such a sight as this. The whole scene is more than I can describe. I hope I never see such a sight as this again. The police arrive at McCarthy sent Boyer to Commercial Street Police Station to fetch the police and having first stopped to secure his shop hurried after him. Inspectors Walter Duff and Walter Beck were chatting inside the station when Boyer arrived as the Duff recalled in his memory. The poor fellow was so frightened that for a time he was unable to utter a single intelligible word. At last, he managed to stammer out something about another one, Jack the Riper. Awful Jack McCarthy sent me. Soon Becky and Jew were following Broyer along Commercial Street in direction of Dorset Street. When they arrived at Miller's Court, Jew tried to the door, but it would not open. Inspector Beck then therefore moved to the window and gazed into the room. Almost instantly, he staggered back. For God's sake, do, he cried. Don't look. Do ignored the order and looking through the window, saw a sight which would stay with him to his dying day. The horror of what he saw was still vivid in his mind when he penned his memories fifty years later. What you saw? As my thoughts could go back to Miller's court and what happened there, the old Nusia indignation and horror overwhelmed me still. My mental picture of it remained as shockingly clear as it though were yesterday. No savage could have been more barbaric. No wild animal could have done anything so horrifying. Mary Kelly body lay on the bed, her head turned towards the window. Her face had been mutilated beyond recognition, and one feature in particular stuck Inspector Dew, the poor woman's eye. They were wide open and seemed to be staring straight at me with a look of terror. Indeed, so true were the mutilations to Mary Kelly's fail that her lover Joseph Bennett was later only be able to identify her by her eyes and ears. The postmortem report. Dr. Thomas Brown detailed her injuries in the subsequent postmortem report. Even today, it inured as we are by graphic depictions of violence and bloodshed on television and in films that detached scientific tone of his report makes of extreme discomforting and disturbing reading. The body was lying naked in the middle of blood, the shoulders flat but the axis of the body inclined to left side of the bed. The head was turned on left cheek. The left arm was close to the body with forearm flexed at right angle and lying across the abdomen. The right arm was slightly abducted from the body and rested on the mattress. The elbow bent and the forearm spined with fingers clenched. The legs were wide open, the left eye at the right angles to the trunk and the right forming an obtuse angle with probes. 
the whole of the surface of abdomen and thigh was removed an abdominal cavity emptied of its viscera the breasts were cut off the arms mutilated by several jagged wounds and the face hacked beyond recognition of the features the tissues of the neck were severed and around down to the bone the viscera were found in various parts wise the uterus and kidneys with only one breast under the head the other breast by the right foot the liver between the feet and the intestine by the right side of the spleen by the left side of the body the flaps removed from the admon and the tines were on the table the bed clothing at the right corner was saturated with blood and on the floor beneath was a pool of blood covering about 2 feet square the face was gushed in all direction the nose cheeks eyebrows and ears being partly removed the lips were blanched and cut by severe incisions running obliquely down to inch to the chin there were also numerous cuts extending irregular across the all the features so guys this was the detailed and horrible report the death of mary kelly but before ending my episode i would like to say few words about mary kelly's friend and so called neighbor lizzie albrook lizzie albrook is one of those witnesses who may or may not have existed she's mentioned in numerous newspapers in articles that were published in the wake of the murder of mary kelly which took place on friday 9th november 1888 but the story of her statement is obviously a syndicated article which several newspapers are attributed to the central news according to the article as it appeared in the newspaper Lizzie Albrook was 20 years old resided in Mary Kelly's court with Mary Kelly and worked at a common lodging house in Dorset Street she claimed to have been very friendly terms with Mary Kelly on account of the fact that they were near neighbors she had allegedly told the reporter who had interviewed her that she had spent time with mary kelly on the evening before her murder as they chatted mary had wandered against going out on the streets as she had done mary also re- mary so lizzie recalled was heartily sick of life she was lagging and lamented the facts that she did not have money to give it up almost a victorian melodrama of course reading the whole story and listening to it i guess you can almost see it as victorian melodrama the tragic murder victim who had wanted to leave behind her life of immortality and return to her blossom of a family in ireland the warning to a young girl woman to avoid the lifestyle she that is mary kelly was leading at all cost so on listening to this you cannot help suspecting that it might have been a fabrication by a journalist which given its themes of regret tragedy and brutal murder was duly picked up by the newspapers across the country it has to be said that the efforts to trace a lizzie albrook in the public records have proved unsuccessful so there is a chance that she never actually existed so then 
is jack the writer a male or a female because the so called lizzy and the so called mather was the woman and not a man was the killing of mary kelly done by lizzy or was it really by jack the writer who knows because cross dressing isn't new in this era or the old era so guys here goes another unsolved mystery so guys until then the next episode this is crime the rest is history and this is your host lavnia zeus adios